This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Baraschetti on ABC Radio WA. Hello, very good to have you along today for the Country Hour and a couple of markets to get through this hour, a wrap of the Mount Barker cattle market and of course a look back at the week that was for the wool market with Danny Burkett. Just after half past 12, crossing to the Bureau of Meteorology and interestingly that low in the Gulf of Carpentaria has formed into a tropical cyclone Lincoln and you'll get the latest forecast from the Bureau on whether it's likely to make its way into WA as a cyclone and possibly taking a look at the rain that this system could bring to WA towards the end of next week. We'll get to that just after half past 12 today. Six past 12 here on the Country Hour. And the big news today is the state government's vision of a world-class marine park along the state's south coast has just been released and it's now open for a four-month public consultation period. Now, the park stretches nearly 1,000 kilometres from Bremer Bay east to the South Australian border. And under the proposal, 25% of it will be no-take sanctuary zones to protect a range of marine animals and plants. That will come as a shock for the commercial fishing industry, which says any overreach on sanctuary zones bigger than 10% will not only devastate South Coast commercial fishing, it will also impact WA's food security. Rhys Whitby is the State Environment Minister. Rhys Whitby, how did you land on that figure, a 25% no-take sanctuary zone? Well, Belinda, as you'd know, there's been a lot of consultation. We've gone above and beyond the statutory requirement for consultation, and there's been a lot of that. those workshops, which you would have heard about, uh, one-on-one consultation with people directly affected, like fishers, the commercial industry, wreckfish, tourism people, uh, people with the interest in the dive and touring community uh, and traditional owners. So we've changed some of those areas. We've cut back others and removed others completely and come back with with an area that uh, will allow 75%, the vast majority of the marine park area to have access to for recreational and commercial fishing. Was that so 25% mark, was that always the aim to reach that target for no-take zones? Look, not, no, it wasn't. And uh, what, uh, what we've arrived at is that at the moment. But this is beginning of uh, a public consultation process, which you would be aware is going to go on for four months. And we'll be looking at what comes back, what more can be raised or what insight the community can give us in terms of of looking at finessing it further. So so I have an open mind. We've done a lot of consultation already, but if there are issues that people can point to us that we haven't addressed, uh, we're very keen to look at that as well. Now, I've just got the interactive map open here in the studio taking a look at the different zones, and there are sort of a range of different zones. There's the sanctuary areas, but there's also zones for cultural management, whale conservation and wildlife conservation. Are all those areas no-take zones? No, they're not. It's only those sanctuary zones which account for 25%. And we've been very mindful that those other areas are significant for uh, Aboriginal cultural heritage or important breeding grounds for 
for rare species, but that doesn't mean that uh, extraction of uh, fish species won't be allowed in those areas. It's purely the sanctuary zones. We've also made sure that those zones where people uh, are restricted are not near areas that are that are popular for fishing and are close to areas where people put boats in and will go fishing from from the beach or jetties as well. So the desire here has been we've got a lot of area to work from. We want a sustainable and to protect the biodiversity values and they are enormous. This marine park will be something that everyone will be proud of. At the moment we have less than 1% of this area protected. We have most of the coastline of the state has the existence of marine parks and that protection to preserve valuable biodiversity hotspots for the future. The south coast has none of that protection. So this is the first time we've brought marine parks to the south coast of Western Australia. And it's about time because we have one of the most amazing coastlines anywhere on the planet on Western Australia's south coast. Do, uh, do a lot of it's that... in a very remote area and, uh, and you know, we need to protect it for the future. Do you think it strikes the right balance or is the environment the only winner here and, and the commercial fishing oh. industry the loser? <laughs> Look, I wouldn't say that at all. Um, I'm sure there will be people in the, the conservation movement who will say this doesn't go far enough. It's always, you know, the job of a government to strike the right balance. And I wouldn't say that the commercial uh, fishers are a loser by any means. Uh, by volume, the biggest value in commercial fishing is the abalone industry and the scallop industry. Their response to this is very positive. They've been very keen to see the government respond to their needs. I hope you have a conversation with with the abalone industry, which is the big commercial operator on the south coast, and I'm meeting with them today here in Esperance. They will examine the proposed boundaries in more detail, but the initial consultation between them and my office has been very pleased with this proposed outcome. Well, that's certainly not the case from the WA Fishing Industry Council, is it? Because it's made it very clear that anything above sort of that 10% sanctuary zone area would be uh, devastating for the commercial fishing industry. So this at 25% is, you know, more than double what they were proposing. Belinda, I'm very keen for you to speak to the abalone industry, the scallop scallop industry and others. And I think you might find that that the message uh, coming from WAFIC uh, might change. Now, there's some very robust arguments that have come out of that organisation in the past, and I, I understand that. They're fighting for the best deal they can get. They're going into this uh, to this uh, process uh, with that attitude. But I think a more realistic and sober reflection on, on this proposed uh, South Coast Marine Park will show that it is hitting the right balance. And you have commercial operators that I'm speaking to today that are very reasonable and believe it's this is a system that they can work with. There's also a lot of commercial operators out, out there that understand the need to protect and preserve uh, their future prosperity through being able to fish long term and uh, having, having a protection of this uh, very valuable part of the coastline of Western Australia. So yes, there's been some loud noises but I think, you know, that might settle down once these uh, proposed boundaries are, are fully analysed and, and looked at. Uh, for wreck fishers, 
Uh, I don't think that there'd be uh, um, much change. We've had similar situations in other states and other parts of Western Australia where similar marine park proposals have been introduced and some of them with a higher proportion of sanctuary zones where wreck fishers and other, other fishers have not noticed a discernible change. Uh, they've been able to get, get out, enjoy fishing. The other thing to point out is that uh, access to the beach and fishing along the coast is not being impacted here uh, and we're very keen to see if you want to go camping or have access to any beach that there's been no change whatsoever from what you can currently enjoy. This is the Country Hour Environment Minister Rhys Whitby here today with the details of the proposed South Coast Marine Park. The park stretches nearly 1,000 kilometres from Bremer Bay east to the South Australian border and under the proposal 25% of it will be no-take sanctuary zones to protect a range of marine animals and plant life. Minister, when formulating this proposal, where did you take your scientific advice from and is that going to be made public? Look, the sectoral uh, advisory groups representing uh, all sectors of industry, whether it was wreck fish or or tourism or the commercial fishers, there was a scientific group as well uh, with researchers from, from leading universities that had input to the process. So they've had their say, um, you know, we've, we've based this on science and the best advice coming through that scientific group, but also uh, evidence and information from a wide range of contributors to the process. So everyone's had the ability to have their say and to draw on evidence and science. And, um, you know, what I think has come out at the other end and uh, is a very reasonable balance that will allow industry to prosper and continue in the long term and gives opportunities of increased uh, prosperity. For example, traditional owners to develop tourism businesses, dive shops to market a world-leading uh, premium product in terms of a, of a hugely significant new marine park. You know, I'm quite optimistic the South Coast Marine Park will rival uh, Ningaloo and the Great Barrier Reef in terms of being significant for people to come and enjoy and observe from around the world. And that gives the South Coast a premium offering uh, in terms of commercial offerings with tourism, and dives, all sorts of recreation adventure. Now, the park's been under constant fire over a perceived lack of consultation with regional communities, with fishing groups. This plan is now open for public consultation for four months. How open are you to listening during this process? Well, I think you'll find that what you can see online today and the information available shows that we have listened all the way along. There's been exhaustive consultation as I said, above and beyond what's statutory required under legislation. We've had one-on-one -on -one meetings. We've approached every licensed fisher and we've said, we want to have a one-on-one -on -one meeting if you want to. Uh, not everyone took up that opportunity, but many did and those consultations have occurred. We've got to this process where we've adapted and changed and removed sanctuary zones uh, based on a lot of feedback. And this is the opportunity extended from three months to four months for public comment. And you'll also recall that the, the local Esperance Council said to us, uh, we wanted you to delay this process over the Christmas New Year period when people go away on holidays and don't have the time to commit to this sort of process. 
So again, we did that as well. We've delayed it until starting now, uh, till June 16. And if you get a good argument sort of based on science, one way or yeah. another, is yeah. there flexibility in that 25%? You know, it could increase, it could decrease? We've already been adaptable. You know, what, what you're seeing in these proposed boundaries have been the result of consultation. And in fact, there was, there was consultation with commercial fishers that has resulted in changes which you're now seeing. And I'll say again today very clearly, we are open to making this even better ballots. Now, that may involve changes or, or lessening of, of the sanctuary zones, or it may result in other changes. I want to have an open mind. I'm not committing to anything. This is a publicly driven process. And what would you say to commercial fishermen who are saying, look, this is really going to impact us, the bottom line for us and our businesses. Is there compensation available for those who are going to be affected by this eventual South Coast Marine Park? Look, the, uh, where there is an, an impact, uh, look, the first thing I'd say is that the feedback I'm going getting directly, and I'm continuing that consultation with commercial fishers in town today, is that they're reasonable people. They understand the need to strike a balance and to uh, be part of an overall community response and they can see how they operate. Now, the other thing I'll point out that talking about a 25% sanctuary zone does not equate uh, to a 25% reduction in take. It doesn't work like that. So what we will see is... um, um, commercial fishers looking at these boundaries, seeing how it impacts them. But of course, there is the provision uh, through the Voluntary Fisheries Adjustment Scheme for compensation. uh, And that's a process that uh, my colleague Don Punch, the Fisheries Minister, will be engaged in. But look, I think we've reached a very positive outcome, one that delivers opportunities of new businesses and, and being able to market a world-class coastline to the rest of the world. I think that will bring advantages to Esperance and other places along the south coast. Uh, It will see commercial operators continue to be viable and prosper uh, and it will also have the opportunity for wreck fishers to be able to go out there and enjoy the environment and catch a fish and have the knowledge that their sons and daughters and grandsons and daughters will be able to do it in the future as well. So you don't think really any commercial fishing business is going to be impacted to the point where they'll go out of business? That's not how you're seeing this plan? Look, I don't believe so. And uh, they will be able to look at these maps and, and determine the impact. And we will be open. If, if there's a, an extreme concern where we got something wrong, We'll look at it as part of this process. This is not the end of the process. This is the we're we're you know getting through the process, and this is the important final step where proposed boundaries have been made public. Uh, we're going to the community and saying, "This is what we wish to do. Let us know what you think." So I'm very keen for the feedback, Minister. Good to talk to you. Thank you. Okay, thanks for the time. Rhys Whitby, the State Environment Minister, in Esperance today to release the State Government's proposed South Coast Marine Park, which suggests the establishment of 25% no-take sanctuary zones to protect a range of marine animals and plant life. 20 past 12. Monique Barker is the WA Oceans and Rivers Manager for the Pew Charitable Trust. Monique, does that 25% no-take sanctuary zone go far enough or do you want more? 
would like to see a world-class marine park like we've got at Ningaloo or the Great Barrier Reef down on the south coast. So someone that has a strong network of marine sanctuaries and just like in Ningaloo and Great Barrier Reef, you've still got great fishing and great coastal experiences. So it's not an, about an tar arbitrary target or figure, it's about making sure we have enough sanctuary zones in the right spaces and the right size to protect the endangered species and the key habitats that are part of the south coast marine environment. But at this stage, the proposed park doesn't go far enough. Is that how you see it? The proposed draft plans aren't giving enough protection of some of those critical habitat uh, areas for endangered sea lions. Also, not enough coverage around the southern right whale carving hotspots. Two out of the, Australia's three southern right hotspots are in the marine park. So some high coverage there also around the research archipelago we're processing that there's not enough coverage of highly protected areas in in the research archipelago all right so if you take all that into account what sort of percentage would be sanctuary zones then again it's not an arbitrary figure or a, a, a target that you're going for it's around making sure but that that, but it still ends up being a percentage of the area doesn't it so if we look at other parks like Ningaloo I think is around about what 20 no, 34% sanctuary zone for Ningaloo and around about 30% for the Great Barrier Reef. Is that what you're looking at? We need to make sure we have that strong uh, network of marine So you won't put a figure on it park. then, is that what you're saying? I am saying that, yeah. It's not an arbitrary figure. But it's, it's more than, but it's more than 25% right is what you're saying? It's around making sure they're in the right spot and then there's a network of them. So the WA Fishing Industry Council is saying that your organisation is pulling all the strings and really leading the department to deliver massive marine parks and sanctuary zones, which will effectively kill off commercial and recreational fishing along the south coast. Is that the goal? Absolutely not. As we can see with other flourishing marine parks around Australia, uh, marine parks work hand in hand with supporting and actually boosting recreational fishing experiences and also sustainable commercial fishing can certainly still occur within our marine parks around Australia. So uh, we certainly think that you can get the outcome for all user groups and for the marine life in this proposed marine park. So what influence does your group have over the DBCA? We are a stakeholder group, Save Our Marine Life, co-led co by the Pew Charitable Trust that, I'm, um, that I work for and Australian Marine Conservation Society, and we are a, we are a stakeholder group. Do you in, tell the department what to do when it comes to marine advice. parks? We gave advice through the government-led uh, consultation process um, that, went, that was taking place the last 18 months, just in the same manner that other stakeholder groups like the fishing peak bodies and tourism and ports and conserva local conservation or contributed to. The proposed plan is now open for four months of consultation. How confident are you that you will get what you're after in terms of expanding those sanctuary zones to protect that marine life you mentioned earlier? Look, it's a really important um, time for everyone ahead these next four months. We certainly encourage everybody to get in, uh, to engage and to participate in the um, public consultation period so that all that information can be put forward for... But how for, confident uh, are you that you'll get what you want? 
Well, it, we will we will contribute the science and conservation case, and that will be considered by the government. But are you and confident you'll get it? Uh, we we hope that we see an outcome at the end. We we think it's certainly achievable to get that world class marine park that delivers what it needs for this incredibly biodiverse marine environment and at the same time is um, supporting ongoing great recreational fishing, sustainable commercial fishing um, and gives more it gives a boost to the to the region. Monique, thanks for being part of the conversation today. Thanks, Belinda. Monique Barker, the WA Oceans and Rivers Manager for the Pew Charitable Trust. You're listening to The Country Hour. Daryl Hockey is the CEO of the WA Fishing Industry Council. That's the peak industry body representing professional fishing, pearling, aquaculture enterprises, processors and exporters here in WA. Daryl, did you ever entertain the thought that the government's opening bid would be a 25% no-take sanctuary zone for the South Coast Marine Park? We've said from the start that this was a political predetermined decision which was made some years ago. We always said that the international eco-lobbyists have been asking for 25%. We were told that the decisions would be made carefully on the basis of science and evidence, and yet it comes out at 25.0000%. That is not a scientific outcome. That is a political decision. And it shows that this whole process has been a complete sham. But if you're going to establish a marine park, I mean, how far does what you proposed was around about a 10% sanctuary zone? How far was that really going to go to protecting marine life, especially in contrast to, say, Ningaloo Marine Park, which has a 34% sanctuary zone, and the Great Barrier Reef around about that 33% mark? Yeah, but you've got to remember that the South Coast is a different kettle of fish altogether. And we're talking about 1,200 kilometres of coast here, which is already pristine, and it's kept that way from the pressures and the careful management that we have, as well as the rough weather that comes in, which makes it very difficult for people to get there. But what we're talking about, we're not against marine parks at all. And as you said, we suggested 10%. Now, just to give you some sort of feeling of what 10% would look like, if you're driving along Graham Farmer Freeway and look over at Perth Stadium, Optus Stadium, call it what you want, have a good look at that. And then the area we were proposing would have been 60,000 of them. We believe that would be an absolute humongous amount of area to have some um, sanctuary zones. What the ministers come back with is about a 150,000 times Perth Stadium. That is absolutely ridiculous. Anything beyond 10% is going to cause serious devastating impacts upon the commercial fishing industry and the supply of seafood to the community. But they've sat there and they've listened to these overseas eco-zealots and they haven't listened to local people and we've ended up with a ridiculous outcome which doesn't take into account the socio-economic impacts on the communities on the south coast. The minister says that uh, the, these uh, 25% sanctuary zone doesn't equate to a 25% reduction in the take for commercial fishermen, and he's not convinced that any commercial fishing business is actually going to go out of business. What do you say to that? Of Of course he's not, but he doesn't know what he's talking about. This is the problem and this is the frustration that we have. This is a frustration we've had with DBCA during this consultation process the last couple of years. And believe me, it's far worse than the debacle that the government came up with with the Cultural Heritage Act. 
They excluded local input. They didn't listen to what the local people were saying. They had a thing called a CRC, Community Reference Committee. When that didn't give them what they wanted, they shut them down. They set up their own science group of hand-selected people and didn't have a fishery scientist on board. And this has been a predetermined outcome from the start. And it, it's really disappointing that the government or the, the minister could go out there and try to defend this. He is deliberately, knowingly damaging the livelihoods of people in country, uh, coastal communities. Some of these people have been living there for three and four generations. Their grandfathers, their fathers, their uncles, their cousins have worked within the fishery over this time. And now some of those are going to have to walk off, unfortunately. It looks really, really, really serious. And I just can't believe that a government could make such a biased, one-sided decision like this without any care, any compassion for human values. The Minister just finished saying that, you know, the, the consultation process from his perspective has been, uh, you know, above and beyond what is required, including the now four-month public consultation period that's opened from this, this point on. Well, well, that's a joke if he's saying that it's been a good process. Even deeper, the Department of Primary Industries and Regional Development was supposed to be a partner in this process. They were shut out of this whole process for more than six months. They wouldn't even return phone calls or emails. There hasn't been an input, so the Minister cannot claim that it's been a decent public consultation process. One thing that hasn't changed throughout the entire process on their maps, they've changed the maps around a bit over the time, but every time it's been 25% that they've gone for. So. If we haven't been able to change things using science and sensibility and our experience over the last three years, what are we going to be able to change over the next three months or four months or whatever else they come up? They clearly have a predetermined outcome. This is a box-ticking exercise and it's very disrespectful for people, hard-working Western Australians. It's un-Australian the way that they're dealing with us. Uh, Rhys Whitby has just said that, you know, by volume, the biggest value in commercial fishing is the abalone and the scallop industries. And he's saying that their response has been very positive up until this point. He's catching up with them today in Esperance. Oh, that's what he might say, but the, both those in, industries are going to still be significantly impact, impacted. Yes, they've made some changes since the last set of maps we've seen, but it was so bad before. I mean, we, we've gone from catastrophic back to devastating. You know, it really is not a good way of looking at things. And I've also tried to take out the benefits I've tried to bring in from abalone and, and scallops and transfer those and say, well, over average, all the other fisheries have benefited as well. They haven't. And, and, and by the way, both those fisheries are very, very important. Um, they make a lot of money um, for, for local communities and some of those are export, but they're not really the types of food which goes into the WA food bowl, which we are trying to um, support, you know, the, the seafood security in WA. All the demersal fish and octopus and all these other species have not been looked after. And that's one of the problems, I man. He said to us that they've made 19% beneficial changes since the last lot of maps come out. Well, that's the equivalent of saying before, we're going to cut 10 of your fingers off, but now we're only going to cut off eight. So therefore, you should be happy that we've moved it in your favour. We're not happy. Well, the Minister thinks that uh, Wafik and, and you as the CEO might change your mind, uh, you know, and sort of see the light on this park, because there's been a lot of Loud noise coming from your organisation up until this point, he was saying, uh, well, about this yeah, marine well, park. Well, and he thinks you might settle down once you've really had a good look at the plans. 
Well, to see thing we're stupid, we can plainly see that it, from every level this has been a complete debacle. For instance, they also said that they were going to involve the Indigenous people properly in this process. Well, the two Indigenous groups who make up about eight or 900 kilometres of the coastline here aren't even going to participate in this process. I mean, it's abysmal at every angle. And you know what this is? This is just a simple case of mind over matter. They don't mind, and in their view, we don't matter. But I'm sorry, we do matter. We're people, we're humans, we're, we're families that, that have livelihoods. We're participants in the coastal communities such as Esperance. We're talking about volunteer ambulance drivers and volunteer firefighters and sporting coaches and people who do sea rescues. They haven't looked at the socioeconomic impacts. They simply don't care. This is simply a political exercise to try to win the support of overseas eco-zealots and eco-lobbyists who are dominated and have infiltrated DVC in this process. For instance, the Environment SAG, the sector advisory group, which is providing the minister with information, uh, recommendations from the environment, every single one of them was made up by representatives of the Pew Charitable Trust from the United States. So where do you go now, Daryl? Oh, that's pretty frustrating. I mean, you know, we've obviously got to go through the motions and to go and talk to our fishermen and get their feedback and get the technical feedback and get scientific responses and make sure that we put in a professional submission. But at the end of the day, there's got to be some goodwill there. And clearly, this is a political decision made a couple of years ago. And I think it's about time. I've, I've previously invited Premier Roger Cook on ABC Radio to come with me, come with Wafik, go down to Esperance, sit down and talk face to face and listen to people. You know, this little consultation program they're trying to set up at the moment, the Premier's staying well away from it, leaving it to his ministers, and they're saying, email in your, your concerns. No, we need people to listen to humans. And I am inviting now the Minister, uh, the, the Premier, to come with Wafik down to Esperance and go face to face and listen to the people. It's about time they connected with people in, in, in rural and regional areas and listen to what they're saying. And you know what? We're not going to have all sorts of food in the future in WA unless our farmers can keep farming and our fishers can keep fishing. Daryl, good to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks. Daryl Hockey is the CEO of the WA Fishing Industry Council. On the text from Mucker in Pemberton, when did Labor ever use reason and common sense with any of their choices? These are the healthiest fishing grounds in Australia, mainly due to inaccessibility. They should only lock up 5%, not 25%. This is trying to appeal to a few lefties from the city, according to Mucker. The text 0448 922 to 1. Jonathan Hopper in the studio with the headlines. Good afternoon, Belinda. The Prime Minister says he is yet to be briefed about a boat arrival off the coast of North Northwest WA. Local residents at Beagle Bay, 100 kilometres north of Broome, have told the ABC a group of 30 men have arrived in the community. The men are believed to be from Pakistan and are in good health. The Federal Resources Minister says she knew the nickel industry was in trouble from December following international indicators. BHP announced yesterday
Saturday it's reviewing its Nickel West operations in WA due to weaker metal prices and is considering a period of care and maintenance. The potential closure would impact more than 3,000 Nickel West employees. And Sir Paul McCartney has been reunited with the bass guitar he used on Beatles hits including Love Me Do, 51 years after it was stolen from the back of a van in London. The Erfner bass was found in a family's attic in Sussex thanks to a search by a project called The Lost Bass. Sir Paul bought the guitar in 1961 and it was taken in 1972. Thanks, Belinda. Thank you very much for that update, Jonathan. 23 minutes to 1 o'clock. And a couple of markets before 1. Uh, Mount Barker cattle market details for you. Tracy Kilner will have the details. And Danny Burkett to go through the wool market for you. First, off to the Bureau of Meteorology and Angeline Prasad with you this afternoon. And that tropical low in the southern Gulf of Carpentaria has intensified. It's now turned into a tropical cyclone off the Northern Territory coast. What's the latest and how is it likely to impact Western Australia? Good afternoon, Belinda. Yes, uh, so we did have enough observations earlier in the day to uh, to make it into a tropical cyclone. So it is expected to make landfall on the southwest Gulf of Carpentaria and track west across the Northern Territory this weekend. It's likely to pop into the Kimberley uh, on, on Monday. That's the most likely track at the moment and then continue moving westwards across the Kimberley. So it is likely that the system, if it enters the Kimberley and early next week, it is likely to bring heavy falls as it tracks west across Across the Kimberley. So a couple of uh, risk factors here. There's a risk of flash flooding if the system moves into the Kimberley from Monday onwards and also riverine flooding, although that riverine flooding will take a while to build up. But the most likely catchments that will be affected are the uh, Fitzroy, the Ord and also the Sturt River. Um, if you have a look at the uh, tropical cyclone outlook, it has been upgraded to moderate for Thursday because there's a risk that the system, if it continues moving westwards across the Kimberley, uh, it will pop over the warm ocean, uh, warm oceans off the Kimberley coast, and if it does, when it does that, it's it's most likely going to be mid to late next week, so Wednesday night into Thursday. And given that it looks a pretty well organized system, it may redevelop into a tropical cyclone uh, later next week off the Kimberley coast. Early days yet, so stay uh, tuned to all our forecasts and warnings. Uh, model guidance can change, uh, and so. So keep an, a close eye on what's happening across the Kimberley over the next few days. And then, Ange, any more details then for northern and eastern parts? There is a heat wave that's gripping uh, the northern and eastern parts, and it's going actually going to become worse. Um, so the heat wave extends from the southwest of the Kimberley into the Pilbara, Gascoigne, and the eastern parts of the state. And unfortunately, uh, we'll see another west coast trough quickly form down uh, the west coast tomorrow. So that's going to maintain a lot of heat across southern and central parts of WA, including the eastern parts. So we might see some dry thunderstorm activity today. Uh, across the western Gascoigne and uh, and uh, the eastern parts, uh, so through the uh, through the um, gold fields and further to the east. Uh, but it's going to be very patchy rainfall tomorrow. The dry thunderstorm risk evaporates, but we do see very. 
uh, hot conditions uh, and enveloping the Gascoigne, the, uh, the Goldfields, the Pilbara. Might see some dry thunderstorm activity continue, especially across western Pilbara, uh, but it's going to be very isolated with very little rainfall. The main thing is over the next few days, it's those very hot temperatures are continuing into next week. And for the southwest land division? That cloud band I mentioned does extend across the northern and eastern parts of the southwest land division today, so across the central west and uh, through the uh, central weed belt and the Esperance. Very little rainfall. There's patchy light rainfall on the radar, but very little is reaching the ground. So if you do get any rainfall, it's going to be less than 0.5 millimetres. Where we do see thunderstorms, m- might get a little bit more, maybe up to a millimetre, but it's going. To, it's fairly dry underneath the the. The, the cloud band. The cloud band is expected to clear off to the east. There might be some lingering rainfall across the Esperance uh, area or region tomorrow, but that it should uh, gradually clear off. And again, as with central and eastern parts, we're going to see uh, severe heat wave return uh, to much of the southwest land division over the next few days. It's going to be a fairly prolonged event this time around. So we start to see temperatures climb up tomorrow and then hit the uh, low 40s uh, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. And we really don't see much respite from the heat, especially on the west coast on Wednesday. The heat will very slowly get flushed east. um, But yeah, it's not likely to happen until probably middle of next week. Thank you so much, Ange. 19 to 1. Richard Hudson in the studio now. He's got some fire information for you and a little bit of rainfall information. Yeah, hardly any rain. In the last 24 hours, the highest reading for the whole state was in the Gascoigne region, and it was Gascoigne Junction, which is just inland from Carnarvon, recorded a whopping four mils. But uh, because of the extreme fire danger again today, there's a total fire ban in place for a number of shires in the Great Southern region. So it covers the shires of Corrigan, Dumbleyung, Jerramungup, Kent, Condinan, Coolan, Lake Grace and Ravensthorpe. So you can't do anything that could start a fire. No solid fuel barbecues or hot work, grinding, welding, gas cutting and no off-roading with four-wheel drives and quad bikes. And if you need to know what else you can and can't do or if you want to see a map of which shires have total fire bans in place, just do a search for emergency and WA. And it is your responsibility to check with your local government if there's a harvest and vehicle movement ban that includes the movement of any vehicles in paddocks that could start a fire. And so today, uh, the shires of Boyup Brook and Ravensthorpe actually have harvest bans in place. Thanks for that, Richard. It's 18 to 1. A West Kimberley cattle station is getting serious about trying to grow crops under irrigation. So the aim is to diversify and spread some of the risk. Roebuck Plain Station is owned and operated by Nyamba Buru Yaru Aboriginal Corporation. Business Development Officer Alan Smith says they've just been given the green light to change the tenure of 420 hectares of land to allow them to clear the country and put in five centre pivot irrigators. We were quite keen to progress an irrigated agriculture opportunity because as a lot of the stations across the northwest would be familiar with, we are heavily reliant on the live export market. And as an organisation, we've been quite keen to diversify our offerings and, and what we can provide to the market. And we see irrigated agriculture as a potential opportunity there. Are you looking at fodder crops for cattle or are you looking at something completely different, a completely different irrigated crop? Yeah, so the business case that we did um, certainly focused on fodder 
And uh, given that we've got a cattle station, there's some obvious, you know, alignment there that we can capitalise on. However, we're not tied to just growing fodder. Um, and once we progress a little bit further down this process to give effect to the conditional freehold through an Indigenous land use agreement, then we will do an expression of interest to the market. Uh, and we're looking to ideally form a joint venture or, or lease a portion of the 420 hectare site to a third party. And, you know, that person might have expertise in growing fodder or that individual or company might have um, interests in growing food for human consumption and, and filling, you know, a winter market by growing up here uh, in the dry season. And 420 hectares in, in the scale of a, a cattle station in the north is might seem pretty small, but in the scale of irrigated cropping is significant. It's bigger than plenty of farm blocks here in the Ord Valley where I'm sitting. How did you choose that 420 hectares and, and where you'd put it? Yeah, so 420 hectares will equate, equate to roughly five or six uh, centre pivots. And the reason that we chose that site was through quite an extensive process with information from various studies and advice from the Yaru community as well. Uh, we did a process called a multi-objective land use assessment, which was uh, an Australian first in partnership with the Australian National University. And it basically overlays uh, environmental soil, hydrology and grazing suitability of the land with cultural values. And so we were able to apply that process to really pinpoint an area which would meet all of those parameters and achieve really good returns in terms of putting in a crop that would be successful. And that's, you know, effectively the size of the area that we came up with that was still within relatively close proximity to Broome um, and could achieve profitable outcomes for any any individual or party that might want to lease the area. Have you got a, a plan for when you want this country to be ready and to be producing crops? I see that you've already secured a water licence and a clearing permit. Have Is there a date when, when movement's going to start happening on that country? Yeah, so now that we've had the minister's endorsement or approval to move from pastoral lease to conditional freehold, the next stage is to undertake an Indigenous land use agreement with the Yaru people. Uh, now, obviously, Nyangaburi Yaru is uh, an organisation of the Yaru people, but being a commercial entity, we still need to go back and, and go through a formal ILUA process. We are anticipating, though, that because it's kind of an ILUA with ourselves, that it will be relatively straightforward. And so we're anticipating that within the next 12 months, um, we will have gone out to EOI and um, hopefully by 2025, we'll, we'll have crops in the ground. And, you know, we're mindful that this particular development will involve land clearing and drawing down on water. But Yaru's ultimate underpinning philosophy is, is an attention to our quadruple bottom line, which is that any of our investments and developments must be culturally, socially, environmentally and economically sustainable. And so we're really looking forward to an amazing and long-lasting future with this opportunity. Could you explain the decision to do this under conditional freehold tenure rather than under a pastoral lease? So under a pastoral lease, it's possible to apply for a diversification permit 
Um, however, the diversification permit is tied to the individual rather than the property. And so when it comes to significant investments like centre pivot irrigation over a 420 hectare area, you know, when we're talking in the millions of dollars, you need uh, that level of security over tenure for a bank to invest essentially or, or to be able to secure finance. So transitioning to conditional freehold means that we will have that security of tenure and it will hopefully facilitate investment from third parties to enable us to get the opportunity off the ground. Yaru Chief Business Development Officer Alan Smith speaking to Alice Marshall. Now, earlier in the week, you heard that two Northern Territory cattle stations are being sold on their potential to produce carbon credits. And it's been estimated that over the next 25 years, Maryfield and Limbunya stations could generate about 10.4 million Australian carbon credit units. But one of the most outspoken critics of the methodology behind these calculations is Professor Andrew McIntosh, who's the former chair of the Emissions Reduction Assurance Committee, the watchdog for the carbon industry. I think it's highly problematic. These projects, given where they're located and given how much of the properties have been previously cleared, it is very unlikely from a scientific perspective that the amount of carbon that they claim is going to be sequestered in regenerating forests is actually going to occur. Why do you think um, human-induced regeneration, what these projects have been registered with, why do you think that methodology can't work in such a place as northern Australia? Well, the projects are supposed to involve reducing grazing pressure in order to induce regeneration of even-age native forests. Now, 70, 80 years' worth of high-quality science in Australia's rangelands has shown that grazing does not have that sort of effect. Grazing does not have result in a substantial reduction in the amount of tree cover in these areas. In some areas, it can have an acute impact. But they're the exception. The general rule is that grazing either has negligible impact on tree cover or it can actually result in increases in tree cover, which is diametrically opposed to what this project and 470 other projects are claiming is occurring. So if the cattle are taken off some areas of these properties, you don't think there'll be an increase in carbon sequestered? No, there'll be an increase in carbon sequestered in in ground cover, so the grasses and the small shrubs, but that amount of carbon is absolutely tiny compared to what they've been credited for. They've been credited for increases in tree cover, so the amount of biomass or the amount of carbon sequestered in the trees. And in particular, what they're saying is they're going to be regenerating or claiming is how the method works, that even-age native forests are going to grow across all the areas that are delineated as the areas where trees are growing. So we're not talking about small numbers of trees. They've been credited on the basis of even-age regeneration of native forests across whole areas, even though when these projects start and on these properties, including on these properties, they already already contain large numbers of standing mature trees. Now, anyone, even with the slightest ecological knowledge, will know you can't grow even-age forests under and through 
and existing woodlands, trees don't grow through existing trees. It does not happen. It cannot happen. These properties, they're being marketed expressly for their carbon potential. What do you think that'll do for land values in northern Australia? I think what's happened here is we've now got 42 million hectares of these projects that are spread across Australia's uncleared rangelands. It's a giant fraud. And one of the terrible consequences of this being allowed and facilitated by the Australian government, it has completely distorted land values across these these rangeland areas. Professor Andrew McIntosh is a leading environmental law and policy scholar and is the Associate Dean at the ANU College of Law. He was speaking to Dan Fitzgerald. It should be noted last year an independent review into the carbon credit scheme rejected criticisms that it's fundamentally flawed. The Chubb review concluded the HIR method is sound, particularly as it is administered by a robust regulatory framework. Eight to one. We'll get to the market shortly. A look at the cattle market at Mount Barker and also the wool market. First, though, green steel company Calix claims it's figured out how to cost effectively produce iron with close to zero emissions. CEO Phil Hodgson says they want to build a commercial demonstration plant in the Pilbara to show how they can produce what's called a green bricketed iron. The process requires green hydrogen. We can get the costs close to where uh, current, uh, let's call them um, high emissions uh, briquetted irons product uh, are currently sort of priced into the market. So before you even add a, a green premium, if you like, to the product, we're starting to get into the right cost range here. So, yeah, that, that was pretty profound sort of outcome of the study for us. So the cost is still higher, but closer to the mark than you were expecting? Yes, exactly. Um, so, for example, at the bottom end of our cost range, which we're seeing in, in a very low sort of US dollars, 400 per tonne, uh, that's a sort of, you know, the hot briquetted iron we've seen traded on the international markets has been above that. Been down as low as sort of low 300s, but also uh, certainly been up as, as high as you know well above 400 US a ton. So we're intersecting uh, into the cost curve, and a, a big factor that will play into this, of course, is the cost of electricity uh, and specifically renewable electrons. You know we're going to need the renewable electrons if we're going to make the green iron. Phil Hodgson is the CEO of Calix. Speaking to Tom Robinson about a joint study with the Australian Renewable Energy Agency, which shows it's possible to cost-effectively produce hot bricketed iron with close to zero emissions. Six to one to the markets. We'll get to wool shortly. First, though, it was a two-day cattle sale at Mount Barker this week. Today, 1,122 trade cattle were on offer, so numbers up a few hundred on the last sale. But Tracy Kilner, I hear yesterday 1,696 weaners were sold. Can you run through the prices? Lighter weights dominated the yarding, with most categories easing with demand. The heavyweight steers eased 20 cents, while the heavyweight heifers gained with the low numbers on offer. Mid and lightweight categories eased with feeder buyers selective, while eastern states and local restockers showed little competition. Wiener steers weighing over 380 kilos returned 270 to 294 cents. 
Steers weighing between 330 and 380 kilos sold from 230 to 304 cents. The lighter steers weighing 280 to 330 kilos made 200 to 288 cents and weights under 280 kilos returned 210 to 320 cents a kilo. Wiener heifers weighing over 380 kilos made from 178 to 206 cents. Weights from 330 to 380 kilos sold from 146 to 228 cents. Lighter weights between 280 to 330 kilos made from 120 to 214 and weights under 280 kilos returned 130 to 192 cents a kilo. Today's trade sale. A large run of processing cattle eased with demand while the lighter weights remained equal with feeder interest. Yearling steers gained 10 cents in all weight categories while the heifers trended down with less demand. A large yarding of cows saw heavy weights gain while medium and stores eased. Over 60 bulls were yarded with heavy weights selling to 222 cents with processor demand. Grown steers weighing 500 to 600 kilos made 150 to 216 cents. Lighter weights returned 180 to 264 cents. Grown heifers weighing under 540 kilos sold from 130 to 192, while the heavier weight heifers made from 125 to 188 cents. Heavy cows sold from 116 to 186, medium weights from 126 to 154. Store cows made from 60 to 132 cents and heavy bulls gained, returning 104 to 222 cents a kilo. Thank you very much, Tracy. To the wool market and the eastern market indicator is down 6 cents to finish the week on 1,157 cents a kilogram clean, and the western market indicator is up 2 cents to close at 1,293 cents a kilo clean. Danny Burkett, what did you make of this week's market? Again, this week we followed the very similar pattern of the previous three. The first day slightly cheaper, second day with a slight recovery. In Fremantle, 18 micron minus 10, 15.60 on the close. They were slightly dearer on the second day on Wednesday. 19 micron plus five for the week, closing at $14 flat. 20 micron par, up one day, down the next, 13.35 clean on the close. 21 micron, 13.25, that was plus 10. And there was no quote for 22 micron, but 21 and a half was also plus 10. So that medium micron group towards the back end certainly got dearer. Pieces and bellies, fine end, fully firm, mediums plus five to 10. If we look at the oddments this week in the short wool market, lambs fully firm, crutchings and stains fully firm and locks plus 20. And I know people think they're only locks, but plus 20 this week make a dollar over the previous month. So that's a great result for that end of the market. Again, we saw some reasonably high past in and withdrawn rates in Fremantle. In fact, if we look at Merino combing wool, 20% of that actually not did not make the market. If we look at Melbourne market, 17% of what was offered did not make the market to be cleared to the trade. And again, if we look at what was re-offered this week in Fremantle, 9% of the offering had been offered prior and with 20% being passed in what we are seeing Four or five weeks ago, we had cleared 100,000 more bales than this time last year. But if we look today, due to the high pass in rates, etc., we have only now cleared 70,000 bales when compared to the same time frame last year. And then looking at the buyers, what was the order of buyers this week? 
Well, that's a very good question, Bill, because the order is about the only thing that is changing. Tech Wool Trading and PJ Morris both took a whopping 21% of Merino fleece wool in, in, um, across the country. And Devil Wool Exports, 14.5%, and TNU burst back into the top four with 9%. And as always, I do just mention Tech Wool Trading because third largest buyer in crossbreds, second largest buyer in the oddment market, and second largest buyer in the skirting. So pretty much we've had the same. Um, same exporters coming into the market, supporting the market, but as you suggested, Bill, it was simply the order that changed. And then for next week, how many bales on offer? Just over 44,000, Sydney, Melbourne, Fremantle. It will be another three-day sale in Melbourne, but as I mentioned last week, I wouldn't be too concerned with Merino combing wool uh, because some of that, um, probably one-third of that market will be crossbred offering. Danny, thank you so much for that. Great to talk to you today. We'll do it again next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.